Please turn with me in your Bible back to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Let me take one moment, as I've been doing in a lot of these messages, just to reorient where we are in the world with Paul's missionary journeys. It is so easy to get lost or disoriented. We are right now walking through the tail end of Paul's third missionary journey. We walked through the first one, second one, now we are at the end of the third one. If you look at the screen, just to remind you of where we've been for the third missionary journey, Paul made his way from his home church over here in Syrian Antioch, where the blue dot is. He made his way through the churches of Galatia. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and the other Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, and then he made his way to Ephesus, right over here on the coast of uh, Asia Minor. And Paul spent uh, about three years ministering there, as we've talked about, the Hall of Tyrannus, teaching daily there. Then he made his way uh, north up to Macedonia, Philippi. Thessalonica, Berea. That's the Macedonian region down to Corinth. When he made his way down here to Corinth, he then was there for three months, and he wrote the book of Romans sent that off west to Italy, and he was going to head east by boat to Jerusalem, but he found a plot was against him, probably to kill him in transit on the ship, something like that. He was also, by the way, carrying a lot of money because he was getting money from these churches to take back to Jerusalem, so he was a target for a, a, a theft. And so he decided to head by land with a bunch of people back up north through Macedonia, through Philippi, and then he lands here on the port city of Troas. Troas is where he preached all night, as we heard two weeks ago, and Eutychus, the poor boy, was sitting in that third-story window, fell asleep, fell out of the window, dead Paul, raised into life, then he continued down the coast of Asia Minor, and he made his way eventually here to Miletus, which is right next to Ephesus, and he's about to leave Miletus and head eventually to Jerusalem. Now, if, if this makes sense, I'm going to zoom in on just this, can you see that, just that little square part. I'm going to zoom in close on that part of the map. This is what it looks like right here. So you've got Miletus right here. There used to be water that would come further in. Today it's changed. The, the, the sea goes out a little further, and you've got Ephesus up here at the top. Just for, just in case you ever, you can just have a little extra thing to hold on to in your mind, the Apostle John, this is a side point, the Apostle John, church history, early church history, tells us John spent a lot of his last decades in the city of Ephesus, which makes sense. It was a major city. We think his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, were written either to the Ephesus or the churches in the area of Ephesians. But if you remember, he, was, he got in trouble for his testimony to the gospel and was sent out into an island prison called Patmos, and that's where you know he wrote Revelation, which is less than, you know, the distance from Ephesus to Patmos is less than the distance from here to Atlanta. It's not that far away. But that's where he was, that's where he was when he wrote the book of, of Revelation to the churches in that area, first of all, being Ephesus. So, when Paul gets to Miletus, right down here, the Ephesian elders somehow or another have to make their way down about uh, about 30-plus miles down to meet Paul. Paul did not want to go into Ephesus. Scott talked about why that was last week, but he just wanted to meet with the leaders of that church, and so they met here in Ephesus, and that is where they are during this uh, well-known incident. If you haven't heard Scott's message last week, you should go back and listen to it. It's really encouraging. He went through, I think it was nine different aspects of Paul's character in these verses that we saw. I won't repeat those, but we will pick up where Scott left off. And I, I just have to repeat Scott's the last verse because it's so good. Uh, it's worth hearing yet again. Uh, 2024. I, let me just tell a brief story. I wasn't planning on it, but Scott and I long ago, uh, maybe 20 years ago, or I don't know, 
15-ish years ago, we were, we were at someone's apartment, and their grandfather was this Christian missionary, and he had, he had given the Bible to the grandson who was a friend of ours, and uh, he had signed, you know, he'd written a note and signed it at the front of the Bible for the grandson. So Scott and I made our way over to the Bible, and we were told to look at it, so we opened it up, and there was the, the grandfather had this little message, and he signed his name, and under his name, he put Acts 2024. I'd never heard that verse in my life, but it burned itself into my long-term memory that day because Scott and I both flipped, not really knowing that verse well beforehand, at least I didn't, we flipped to that verse and read it, and I thought, wow, that is one of the most amazing life verses I've ever seen in the whole Bible. Let's read it again. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And let me me say to you, we all have the same course in the sense that all of our courses are headed toward Jesus if we know Jesus, but we don't all have the same course in terms of what our lives all look like on the ground. Tomorrow we will all be in different places. We will all be doing very different things. Some of us will be changing diapers in the morning. Some of us will be studying for a test in the morning. Some of us will be giving the test in the morning, which is a much more enjoyable experience. (laughs) Some of us will be working at a bank, or maybe you're a lawyer, or maybe you are whatever. You're a dentist, or you're uh, a plumber, or whatever you may be. You may be painting someone's house tomorrow. I don't know what you will be doing. But we all have many different paths that God has called us to. We have a course for ourselves, and we must trust that whether my life goes the way I want is not the point. The point is that I finished the course He has placed in front of me. My course may not be as glorious as yours. It might not be as glamorous as yours. Yours may get more attention than mine or whatever, but I must trust that the Lord has me on the path He has me on with my name on it, and I must be faithful on that path, trusting that God is good, that He is in control, and that whatever is before me is what God has in store for me. And so we must believe that as we walk into this week. As we get into today's passage here, Uh, I am titling the sermon, Paul's Pastoral Portrait, Paul's Pastoral Portrait, and today's passage is given by an apostle to elders, but please do not tune out. Because you're like, if you're not an elder, you know, only what, four of us in the room are elders or what, whatever. And you say, I'm not, an, I'm not an elder. This, this text may not apply to me. Well, it applies to us in many ways. First of all, much of what is said here applies to all Christians. And secondarily, we need to know if, if you were to leave this church, you move somewhere for a job or for school or for whatever, and you're looking for a local church, you need to know the kinds of elders or pastors you should be looking for in a particular local church. So this could be a guideline. Uh, and it also could be a great way, and we would, we would be indebted and grateful to you if you prayed for the four of us that these things would be increasingly true of us because we all know our faults and failings as elders, and we feel our need for God's strength and help regularly. So pray these lists for us. We would be unimaginably grateful if you did that uh, for the four of us here. So Paul's pastoral portrait, and uh, I'm going to get into this a little more, f- more fully, but let me just give you the, the five words to sort of hang this, much of this sermon on. It, it's, it's one sentence with five blanks at the end. So the question is, what do elders or overseers or pastors do? What are they supposed to do? The answer is they shepherd the flock by there's five things. They shepherd the flock by, number one, teaching, number two, caring, number three, protecting, number four, growing, and number five, giving. I'm going to say that again. So what is the job of an elder or pastor or overseer? 
They shepherd the flock by teaching, caring, protecting, growing, and giving. And at the end, we'll talk about some of the motivations for that. And before I just plunge into these five points, I I, I feel a need for a bit of an introduction here on the pastoral ministry in general. If you've been around for a few years, you could almost fill in these words before I say them. I feel like Zach Petty could could say everything I'm about to say right now, Uh, but I've said this a lot in the past. But but we need to be reminded of these things, and this text is a perfect example of uh, of what I would like to mention here. Look with me at a few things. Number one, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the what word? Elders of the church. Now, the Greek word there, I'm going to give you some Greek words just so you can hear them, okay? Uh, the Greek word presbyteros, okay? Where we get the word presbyterian, okay? The word for elder. So, you, you, this group of men is called, they're called, uh, they're called presbyteroi. They're called elders. Right? That's what they're called, elders. Okay, now keep going. Look down a little further here. Look at verse 28. We'll come back to these verses in a moment, but pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopoi, where we get the word episcopalian. You're like, which denomination is right here? They're all picking different Greek words here for the leadership of the church. We just got Baptist. I'm not sure what we're referring to here, but we got episcopos, episcopoi. This word is sometimes translated in the old translations, maybe bishop, something like that, but it's the word overseers. And then, I, I love the ESV. This is one of those little spots where I'm like, man, I wish they had translated this word differently. Almost every English translation, I think, gets this just spot on. Almost every single one. In the ESV, I'm like, guys, come on. Uh, they, they translate it care for the church of God. Now, that's not a wrong translation, but this word care for, paimoi, uh, or something, I don't know. It's, it's the word for shepherd, the word for pastor. I wish they just translated shepherd. Almost every English translation translates the word shepherd the church of God, like a verb, like do this. And I do wish that's how the ESV had translated that word there, because it is the word shepherd or pastor. Now, the reason why I make a big deal about this is because there's a lot of confusion, especially if you've grown up in more of a typical Baptist church in the last century. There's been a lot of confusion on this particular point because and I'm not, this is not me, you know, I'm not saying this self-righteously or pretentiously, but I want to be biblical and clear. And as I have to say almost every time, being biblically clear is not the same thing as being mean-spirited. I think biblical clarity is a good thing. Even if it is offensive to some, it's not unloving to do that, to be biblically clear. So, very often you will see in a Baptist church, you'll have one pastor, a, 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 he's called the pastor, and then you'll have a, a, a group of deacons, perhaps, a, a deacon board that does a lot of the voting and decision-making, and you might even have a number of different um, uh, groups and whatnot that make decisions. But, um, biblically speaking, you cannot find one church anywhere in the New Testament that has one pastor leading the church. I dare you to try. You can't find it. What you find is in every single explicit text, and we're going to walk through, we could glance at a few of these, it's always elders or pastors or overseers in the plural every single time. There is no exception to this in the New Testament. In fact, if you just flip to the left to Acts 14 to give you one clear example. Acts 14, this is Paul's first missionary uh, journey. At the end of that journey, he's going through the, church, the, the churches in Galatia that he's just founded in the last few months. And look with me at verse, this is Acts 14, 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders 
for them in every church. That's just very strong. When they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And on you go. Philippians 1.1, the letter is written to who? The overseers and the deacons of the church in Philippi. Or you can look at um, here in Acts 20, there's elders. Acts 15, the church in Jerusalem, yes, James as an apostle had a prominent role. I I think James was an apostle based on Galatians 2, but he had a prominent role, the half-brother of Jesus, he's going to have a prominent role in the church, but he has a group of elders in the plural that, that, are, that are helping lead that church as, as well. So, the reason this is important is because in uh, Methodist denomination, also in the Episcopalian denomination, also in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they've taken on a notion that the word for uh, episkopos, the word bishop, the word overseer, begins to have a different role than the word for elder or pastor. And this did begin, I will grant you, in the early church, uh, a guy in the second century, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, he writes that uh, it seemed convenient to them to have a bishop who was, had authority, a single man who had authority over a collection of elders, even over collections of churches. And nowhere in the Bible is the word bishop or episkopos or overseer used for a separate office from pastor or elder. Pastor, elder, overseer refer to the same office. And uh, you get into a lot of trouble. The reason why there is a papacy is because of this misunderstanding, right? The Pope is the Bishop of Rome. He is the Bishop of Bishops. He's the, the Father Pope, the, the Papa, the Pope, literally the Papa, the Father Pope over, over all the other bishops and all the other as well. So, we get into a lot of trouble when we don't take the biblical definitions of elder, overseer, pastor. And, and, and about a century ago, in Southern Baptist circles, elders became very unpopular. If you know anything about Baptist history, It's riveting reading, uh, if you know anything about Baptist history. But Baptist history, back in the 1800s, Baptist churches had elders. That was normal. They had a plurality of elders. That was, that was typical. Um, and somewhere around the turn of the century, uh, elders became very unpopular in Baptist churches. They sort of waned, and, and suddenly deacons sort of took over the job. But the problem is, if deacons are acting like elders, there's going to be a lot of confusion because you're calling the wrong name by the group, right? You're calling what should be elders, you're calling them deacons. And so, a lot of confusion can come uh, as a result of that. So, that's why we have a plurality of elders at our church. And um, I think the role of, role, role of elders is obviously significant. So, Paul is pouring into these uh, elders at Ephesus. And let me just read one more text. Don't turn to this one. You can turn back to Acts chapter 20. While you're turning there, in Titus chapter 1, Paul says this to Titus. Titus was on the island of Crete, and he says, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, Paul says something is disordered in a church if there are not elders. And so these churches had apparently been recently planted, and there were not time to develop leaders or elders. And so Paul says, okay, you need to put into order what remains undone. What is undone? Well, they don't have elders. And so he says, Titus, you better appoint elders in every town as I directed. And very likely, each town had its own church. And so you put elders, plural, in each church, in each town. So on I could go about that, but we would all be Eutychuses by the time I was done explaining that in any more fullness. So I hope you understand uh, where we are coming from on that. All right, let's look into what, uh, what elders or overseers or pastors do. And before I go any further, let me just say again, the reason why when I open the service, I say I am one of the pastors here is because I'm trying to explode a misnomer about the word pastor. People tend to think pastor is one person and elders are a group of people. But in the New Testament, 
to shepherd or pastor is the same as elder or an overseer. So, when I say I'm one of the pastors, I mean I'm one of the elders, I'm one of the overseers. That's, that's, I remember one time a visitor, I think, was sitting near someone I know, and they, I think the visitor whispered, like, how many pastors does this church have? What's going on here? They have a bunch of pastors? Well, I just mean elders, pastors, overseers in that sense. All right, let's get into the, the meat of what Paul is saying to these elders. Uh, how do they shepherd the flock? Well, number one, they shepherd the flock by their teaching. Let's start in verse 25 to 27 for the first point. And the points just go in order through the text. 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Let's skip down to the very end, verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Now, as Scott mentioned, there is debate, actually, about whether Paul truly did see them again or not. First Timothy 1.3 would seem to indicate he did see them again, but this would have been many years later after Paul would have expected to not be able to come back. And so, it is possible he saw them again after his release from prison. But you see the affection Paul has with these elders. They were weeping, embracing, kissing. They were sorrowful. Have you, have you ever bought into the idea that Paul is this sort of, what's the word, like austere, sort of a, uh, a emotionally detached, cruel, severe person? Sometimes people paint this picture of Paul being that way. That could not be further from the truth. Paul was a man that when he was leaving the church, the leaders wept in his presence because of the sad thought that Paul was going away for maybe forever and at least for a long period of years. And so they wept, they embraced, they kissed each other on the cheek as was culturally normal to do at the time. That was part of the custom. And they showed great love and affection and tenderness. Paul was a man that there was tender affection. He speaks about the Thessalonians, how he was like a, a nursing mother, gentle with the members of that church. He, he, was, he, was, he was with them in a spirit of gentleness, sharing not just the gospel, sharing his own, life, his own life with them as well. So there was a tenderness to Paul and an affectionate side as well. But the teaching, look at verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I'm innocent of the blood of all because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Why does he say did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God? I think the answer is because it can be intimidating in any culture, at any time in history, to speak the full truth of God's Word on every issue. It changes, doesn't it? What the Bible says on one issue may not be offensive at all. Like, for instance, if I talk about the Bible's the notion of loving and forgiving your enemies, well, yeah, people in our country generally will like that. But there's other parts of the world today where if you talk about loving and forgiving your enemies no matter what, they will think that's preposterous. And, and you can find places vice versa where we talk about judgment or, or hell in our culture and people find that unthinkable. But there's other parts of the world, hell is not hard to believe. What's hard to believe is God's grace and forgiveness. Uh, one person from a, from a completely different cultural background said what, the trouble they had believing the Bible, I, think, I don't know if it was a man or a woman, but the trouble this person had believing the Bible was that they would not be able to be with their relatives and their, their ancient ancestors in eternity if they became a believer. That's not an objection anyone I've ever known here in America has ever made about the Bible, but where we are culturally located will often determine which aspects of the Bible are most offensive. 
what, what are most hard to swallow, and they change depending on when and where you live. But here's what stays the same. No matter where you are or when you are, there are things in the Bible that people will not want to hear. That is always true. And listen, there will be an increasing tendency to shrink back and not state clearly what Scripture says on controversial issues. Uh, I, I had someone send me a message of a church they were curious about uh, recently, and I listened to part of the message, and the pastor said, I'm not misquoting him, the pastor said something along the lines of, just listen to this sentence, I think this is becoming increasingly common. The issue is homosexuality, and the pastor said, if you had to choose between a miserable heterosexual marriage or union and a loving, caring, now you got to use quotes here, a loving, caring, homosexual marriage or union, the homosexual union wins every time. Set it from the pulpit. Now, is, do, you, do you see the fear? Is there a desire to shrink from saying all that God's Word says on a particular issue? Do you, do you feel that? I, I think in our culture there's different issues. Sexual morality is a big one right now, but there are many others around that for us to be clear on the issue is going to get us in trouble. Churches may shrink when you get clear on these issues. You may lose people of this, and you don't want to. There's no hatred. There's no, no lack of love. In fact, it is love that makes us speak what's true. False love says what's not true to please the people you want to impress. That's fake love. It, 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 it's, it's second, Timothy says, well, what does Paul say? All Scripture is God-breathed. It is all useful, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God would be thoroughly and completely equipped for every good work. Then he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the world and with His angels who are coming. Preach the Word. What? In season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, rebuke, and reprove with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. Then he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, healthy teaching. But they will what? They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions, telling them what their itching ears want to hear. Now listen, can you grow a following, a large following, by telling people what their natural flesh, independent of God, already wants to hear? Yes, you can. You can grow a large group of people preaching what people want to hear, and you will become increasingly persuaded that you should leave off the offensive bits because you might lose an evangelistic opportunity, and you'd start justifying and rationalizing why you say what you say and how you say it. And before long, ten years have passed, and your gospel is no longer the gospel. What you're teaching is no longer recognizably truly biblical. Yeah, there's a Bible verse strapped onto your sermon, and you've got a few references here and there from all over the Bible, picking, handpicking your verses, but the idea that you're just speaking what God says, that, that's gone. Uh, and honestly, I, I'm, I don't think it's a sin to not preach systematically verse by verse through books of the Bible. Spurgeon did not do it that way. Edwards did not do it that way. The Puritans generally did not do it that way. I'm not saying it's a sin, but I do think there is great wisdom in preaching verse by verse straight through books of the Bible. You know why? Because I have to talk about whatever the next paragraph says. And if I cheat on it, you'll know, right? How can I avoid it? Uh, there's stuff in Acts that even I'm uncomfortable talking about. It's stuff that's challenging to me. This sermon is all about how pastors are held to a really high standard. How much you love talking about that, right? It's just like putting yourself under a microscope. It's kind of terrifying. There's a lot of stuff I don't naturally want to talk about. But if I'm, if I'm constrained by the biblical text and all your Bibles are out in front of you, you can know if I'm lying to you or not. You know if what I'm saying is what the text is saying or if I'm making something up to please people's ears, to please, their, please people's preferences, to please people's passions. We, we know, and Paul says, listen, there was every desire in Ephesus to shrink back. 
He said he had the sentence of death pass over him in Asia, which is a reference in 2 Corinthians 1 to his time in Ephesus. The death sentence came over him. He was greatly burdened beyond his ability, beyond his strength. What was happening? No doubt it was about what Paul was saying in the hall of Tyrannus that got him in all that hot water. And Paul could have simply tweaked the message. I've mentioned this before, but I think this is a powerful point. John the Baptist went to prison and then had his head removed with Herod, Herodias, that whole crazy scenario. That all happened because John refused to edit one sentence of sexual ethics from the Old Testament. It is not right for you to have your brother's wife. All John had to do was remove that sentence, and he would not have gone to jail. And his head never would have been removed. How easy would it have been to rationalize that if you're John the Baptist? You don't have to say to the king who can kill you, you're doing something sexually immoral, king. You don't have to do it. Just cut, just, just say, I believe it personally. If you ask me in private, I would say it, but I'm not going to go public with that message. It'll get me in all kinds of trouble. If I just cut that one sentence out, I'll keep being faithful to Jesus and my ministry will continue to explode. But the answer is, that's not the right thing to do. John risked his life and gave his life for one sentence of sexual ethics from the Old Testament. And, and Paul says, I could have shrunk back, but I would have been guilty of your blood. Because if I don't tell you what it says, I'm lying. And if I'm lying to you, your doom, your judgment is on my hands, not yours, because it was my job as the messenger to tell you the truth, and I lied to you. Lied by silence. You know you, know you can lie by silence. You, you see all kinds of Christians get asked hard questions, and, they, ah, dah, dah, and they're talking around it. They don't, they don't want to say what the text says. Paul knows it takes courage. Apostles say this, but elders, pastors, overseers must be willing out of love to teach all of God's counsel, His whole counsel. And listen, I've said it a hundred times now, I think perhaps 3,000 hours of Bible teaching in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. Do you think Paul covered the whole counsel of God? He covered everything you can imagine. He was covering all over the Old Testament. He was bringing out Revelation quotations from Jesus that he had. He's drawing everything together. He's showing how the whole of Scripture points to Jesus and judgment is coming. And there's a bloody cross that makes a way for sinful people to be made right with a holy God. And if you don't turn and trust in Him, you will perish in your sin. But the floodgates of mercy have been opened. And if we will trust in Christ, we will be saved. We will be, we will be restored. That, that's what Paul's preaching. Paul says, your blood is not going to be on my hands. So the, the shepherd must be must shepherd the flock by teaching, number two, by, by caring. Let's look at verse 28. What do I mean by caring? But pay careful attention. This is caring. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care, or shepherd, the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. So, the, the, the shepherd, okay, just think about the shepherd. The shepherd must pay attention to himself. The elders must pay attention to themselves to make sure they are not going off the rails. They, they care for their own well-being, but they also are caring for the individual sheep. What does Jesus say? The shepherd, Matthew, I think it's 18, the shepherd has 100 sheep. How many wander away? One wanders away, and what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. I, this convicted me recently. I was listening to another pastor talk about this very thing. He said, it can be a temptation of a pastor, say you have 100 members. Let's say one's just straying away into sin. They're, they're gone. They're just straying. They're, they're, there's no accountability. They're just out. How tempting is it 
if 20 more people come to your church the next week or five more people come to the church that next week to feel like, oh, this is good, we got a little bit bigger. Yeah, I know that person straight away, but uh, we'll figure that out sometime. We don't really, and just moving on from that and, and losing that responsibility. But no, caring for all the flock, not, not just for a few, caring for all the flock, the, the, the members of Christ's church, the, the, the members of the local church, caring for all in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We don't make ourselves overseers. Church doesn't make us overseers. It's kind of like marriage. You don't make yourself married. What God has joined together, let no man pull asunder. The elders of this church, Greg, Scott, Jerry, and I, we have not made ourselves elders. You have not made us elders. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit has made us overseers. That's what it says in this text. That makes me feel a sense of trembling about this. God is involved in this. There's accountability. He has placed us here. There's an accountability there. Verse, uh, let's go to the next one, is protecting, verses 29 through 31. 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Would you turn with me? Hold your spot. Turn with me to Ezekiel 33. I'm going to read a good chunk of, of, of some of Ezekiel's writing here. Ezekiel 33. This is the protecting idea, and you'll see some themes from the last point. But listen carefully. I'm going to read an extended portion. Follow along. Ezekiel 33, verse 1. See if you can see, hear some similarities to what Paul is describing. Ezekiel 33, 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming, the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet. That's the pastor without speaking the truth. So that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you, have, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God. Now hear this to all of you in the room. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Now turn to chapter 34. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. 
prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains, and on every high hill my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherd feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for the sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. Look at verse 22. I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now let's turn back to Acts chapter 20. I, I have a… Th these texts, I hope it's just so clear. Shepherds who either exploit the sheep for their own advantage, do you see this? I mean, we're all vulnerable here, but do you see this sometimes on Christian television? Send me the money, I want the private jet. Those are extreme versions, but there are lesser ways we can exploit one another for greed, for gain, for recognition in a sinful way. We're all vulnerable. Don't just think this is the guys on the television. This is, any of us could fall prey to this in different ways. Number two, the, the, the desire not to feed them right doctrine. Listen, look at the warning here. One more time. Look at verse 29 of Acts 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves perhaps the elders themselves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. People who think false doctrine is a rare occurrence that only the most gullible and naive Christians would ever buy into do not know this topic well enough. False doctrine is creeping outside the door of all of our lives small and large, misunderstandings of God, misinterpretations of the text that begin to lead us away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. You know how many books in the New Testament? I don't remember the exact number, but you know how many books in the New Testament address the issue of false teachers? 
It's almost everyone. Almost every New Testament book out of the 27, almost every single one explicitly addresses the dangers of false teaching. You're like, even short books like Jude, that's all Jude is about. Second Peter, that's pretty much all Second Peter is about. Uh, you just, just go read about these, these false teachers. Even short epistles will, will give warnings about false teaching. It is serious stuff because it can lead us astray. You know, you, you may not see it quickly, but over time, people can begin to drift. All right, number four. Verses, verse 32, this is about the shepherd, uh, will, will, the, the shepherd will shepherd the flock by growing. This is personal growth. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So as Paul is leaving, he says, I am out of here. Here's what I'm leaving you with. Two things. What are they? God and the word of His grace. So Paul says, I cannot be here to personally deal with all the issues. I'm leaving. I'm departing. I'm leaving you in the hands of God and God's word of grace. And so if we want to grow spiritually as elders to grow or any member of this church to grow, we must cling to God. And the way we cling to God is by His word. If we want to hear from God, it's the word of God. If we want to get to know God, we got to study His Word. This is where God speaks to us. So we are commended to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build us up and to give us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Number five, they're to shepherd the flock by giving, by giving. Now, I, I don't think… Let's see if you can track this here. The end of verse 32, he points us to the inheritance, right? The, the eternal inheritance. And then the very next sentence, verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You think that's an accident? We're going to inherit a new creation with Christ. All things are ours. The new heavens and new earth. Eternity with Christ is secure through the blood of Christ. So why would you covet someone's shirt, apparel? Why would you covet someone's car? You're going to inherit the universe, and you're coveting someone's new car. That, that makes no sense. Uh, Scott's told the story before, as Isaac Newton told the story of the guy coming to New York to, to get his inheritance. Is that right? It's New York City? John Newton. What did I say? Isaac Newton. Let's continue. Tells a story of a guy going to receive a multi-million dollar inheritance in New York City. You remember this? And his, his uh, carriage breaks down on his way a mile outside the city. And um, what would you think of this guy if he's walking to New York City with his head down, frustrated, pounding on, his, you know, pounding on himself, going, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. You, you would think this guy is out of touch. When you walk the 20-minute walk, you're going to get millions of dollars. And you're bemoaning your carriage is broken. You're not believing what's actually true of you. And Paul says, listen, I have no reason to covet anyone's silver or gold or clothes because I'm receiving eternal riches in Christ. And so instead of coveting, greedy, we become generous. We give. Look at verse 34. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. So he's working. In all these things, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, that statement from Jesus is nowhere in the Gospels. It's one of these rare quotes that we get outside the Gospels of something Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is an offer of joy to, to give ourselves away for others. You may, not, you may not have a lot of money at this stage of your life. Maybe you feel that way. 
But we can give other things too. We can give our attention. We can give our incredibly precious time. We can give our money. We can give our help, our aid. We give to others because it is more blessed and more like Christ to give than to receive. And I'm going to close now. Two quick points. I've already sort of mentioned them, but I just want to mention two things. Why? Why do we do all this? Now, we've already heard reasons why, but let me just give two crystal clear things I've already made reference. But number one, because of the cost Christ paid for His church. Look again, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I think that Paul is being deliberately provocative by saying God purchased the church with His own blood. Footnote, I know there's a textual variant here, but I think this is the right reading. We'll talk about that. I think that's the right reading. God purchased the church with His own blood. He's not saying that God the Father died on the cross. That's That's an ancient heresy with a fancy name. No, no, this is referring to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is God the Son. And it is true that God, not in, that Jesus, God the Son, He died on the cross, and then when His blood was shed, it was the blood of God. Not that God has a body, but that Jesus took on flesh, and that when He bled and died, it was the blood of God. It was the priceless blood of of God the Son, Jesus Himself. And if Jesus paid that price for the church, how much more should we value and care for the church? Now, I'll, I'll wrap up with this illustration. The other reason is just that there's infinite gain or infinite loss in front of us. Eternal life, eternal destruction, that's at stake in these things, so that should be a motivation. But let, let me close with this, with this brief story. John Piper told a story where he said that he uh, once was at a lake with his young children back, this is in the 80s, I suppose, and one of his children, who was really young, I don't think had a life jacket on, fell into the lake. So Piper said just without even thinking, just went straight into the water. Okay, some of the dads in the room have done this, I'm sure, uh, maybe different times, but he just he went straight into the water, grabbed his young son, pulled him up out of the water. But he said, now imagine a much more dramatic scenario. Uh, imagine a scenario where um, uh, there, there were a lot of dangers in the water, and what if I knew that jumping into that water could risk my own life? He said, what if I got in the water, and as I pulled my son out and held him up, what if I was in some way unable to, to be saved? What if I died right there in the water saving my son? He said, okay, if, the, if my last words as I handed my son up to everyone on shore, right as I went to, as I was, as I was at the moment of death, as I handed my son to the people, he said, if I said, please care for him, how much weight would those words have given that he died saving his son's life? And he said, that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus went into the waters of God's judgment. He knew he wasn't coming out. And he went under. And he died under the waters of God's judgment in the place you should be and I should be. And He shed His costly, infinite blood for you, for the church of God, for the sheep of God. How can we go gossip and slander one another? We're the blood-bought bride of Christ. We're going to treat someone in, in a way that is, that is not Christ-like when He shed His very blood for His sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that should make us have the highest regard for the church of Christ on earth as anything else in the world possibly could. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, all of us have responsibilities like some of the ones mentioned in this text. We may have roommates that we need to reach out to. Certainly, many of us have co-workers that, we, that you've placed in our life, in our path. 
Many of us have children who desperately need to know the gospel. Some of us have siblings or even parents who do not know you. God, give us that incredible mixture of genuine love and humility and clarity and conviction in our speech. It is so hard to hold on to both, to be genuinely loving and speaking clearly with humility, but God, help us not be arrogant in the way we speak and not to be timid to the point where we won't speak. Help us, God, to not shrink back from humbly and joyfully declaring the whole counsel of God. Give us wisdom to know what to say and when to say it, but God, give us boldness to speak. Help people to see an urgency in our eyes that is not fake. And please forgive us when we fail. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.